0: Chapter Two of the Railway Builders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. The Railway Builders, a Chronicle of Overland Highways by Oscar D. Skelton. Chapter Two Early Travel in Canada. British North America, before the railway came, was a string of scattered provinces. Lake Huron was the western boundary of effective settlement beyond lay the fur-traders preserve between upper and lower canada and the provinces by the atlantic a wilderness intervened with the peninsula of ontario jutting southwest between michigan and new york and the northeastern states of the union thrusting their borders nearly to the st lawrence the inland and the maritime provinces knew less of each other than of the neighboring states settlement clung close to river lake and sea till the eastern townships were settled lower canada had been one long drawn-out village with houses close set on each side of the river streets deep forest covered all the land save where the lumberman or settler had cut a narrow clearing or fire had left a blackened waste to cut roads through swamp and forest and over river and ravine demanded capital surplus time and strong and efficient governments all beyond the possibilities of early days on the other hand the waterways offered easy paths The St. Lawrence and the St. John and all their tributaries and lesser rivals provided inevitably the points of settlement and the lines of travel. The development of water transport in Canada furnishes a record of the interaction of route and cargo, of need and invention, of enterprise and capital. First came the bark canoe, quick to build, light to carry round the frequent gaps in navigation, and large enough to hold the few voyageurs or the rich and little peltry that were chief cargo in early days it was the bark canoe that carried explorer trader soldier missionary and settler to the uttermost north and south and west for the far journeys it long held its place well on into the nineteenth century fur traders were still sending in supplies from montreal and bringing back peltry from fort william in flotillas of great bark canoes for shorter voyages the canoe gave place to the larger and clumsier bateau the characteristic eighteenth-century conveyance After the War of 1812, the increasingly heavy downward freight of grain and potash led to the introduction from the United States of these still larger Durham boats. Along the coast and on the Great Lakes the sailing schooner long filled a notable place. Finally, the steamboat came. In 1809, only one year after the Claremont had begun its regular trips on the Hudson, and before any steamboat plied in British home waters, John Molson of Montreal with John Bruce and John Jackson, luckily for Canada not all three baptized Algernon, built at montreal the forty-ton steamer accommodation seven years later upper canada's first steamboat was launched the seven hundred and forty-ton frontenac built at the then thriving village of ernestown the fleet of river and lake steamers multiplied rapidly the speed and certainty and comfort relative at least of the steamboat at once gave a forceful impetus to settlement and to travel and for some sections ended the pioneer period meanwhile the waterways were being improved Little was needed or done in the great network of New Brunswick's rivers or in Nova Scotia's shorter streams, but on the St. Lawrence system, with a fall of nearly 600 feet from Lake Erie to Tidewater at Three Rivers, canal construction was imperative. As early as 1779, canals were built round the rapids between Lake St. Louis and Lake St. Francis on the St. Lawrence, with a depth of only a foot and a half of water on the sills. Far westward, at Sault Ste. Marie, the Energetic Northwest Company built about 1800, a canal half a mile long in the early twenties after the failure of a private company the province of lower canada constructed a boat canal between montreal and lachine and a less successful beginning was made on a canal round the chambly rapids on the richelieu in upper canada the british government built the rideau canal chiefly for military purposes the welland canal was begun by a private company in eighteen twenty four opened for small boats five years later and taken over by the province in eighteen forty after a record notable alike for energy and perseverance and for jobbery and inefficiency After the Union of 1841, when population, revenue, and credit were all growing, energetic digging was begun on the St. Lawrence system of canals, and by 1848 vessels of twenty-six foot beam and drawing nine feet of water could sail from the ocean to Chicago. Land transport came later than water transport, and developed by slower stages. Road-making was an art which the settler learned slowly. The blazed trail through the woods sufficed for the visit to the neighbor or to the church, or for the tramp to the nearest grist-mill with a sack of wheat on one's back he who has been once to church and twice to mill is a traveller the common saying ran the trail broadened to a bridle road for pack-horse or saddle-horse the winter that maligned stepmother of canada gave the settler an excellent though fleeting road on the surface of the frozen river or across the hard-packed snow through the endless swamps jolting corduroy roads were built of logs laid crosswise on little or no foundation with more hands and more money there came the graded road fenced and bridged but more rarely graveled finally little earlier than the railway came the macadamized road and that peculiar invention of upper canada the plank road built of planks laid crosswise on a level way and covered with earth to lessen the wear and noise upon these roads carriole or calesh cutter or lumber wagon carried the settler or his goods to meeting place and market by eighteen sixteen a stage route was established from montreal to kingston a year later from kingston to york toronto and in eighteen twenty six from toronto to niagara and from Lancaster to detroit road-making policy fluctuated between the Scylla of local neglect and the charybdis of centralized jobbery at first the settler was burdened with the task of clearing roughly the road in front of his own land but the existence of vast tracts of clergy reserves or other grants exempt from clearing duties made this an ineffective system labor on roads required by statute whether shared equally by all settlers or allotted according to assessed property proved a little more successful on the other hand the system of provincial grants for road building too often meant log rolling and corruption and in the canadas it was discontinued after the establishment of municipal institutions in eighteen forty one the reaction to local control was perhaps too extreme and we are today recognizing the need of more aid and control by the central provincial authorities in the maritime provinces the system worked better and when the railway came these provinces possessed a good network of great roads and by-roads without a single toll gate with the passing of the joint stock act by the canadian legislature in eighteen forty nine toll road companies were freely organized and many of the leading roads were sold by the government to these private corporations and without question their operations brought marked improvement for a time To realize more concretely the mode of travelling before the railway came, let us make the journey, say, from Quebec to Toronto, at three different periods, in 1800, in 1830, and in 1850. In no part of North America, wrote an experienced traveller just at the close of the eighteenth century, can a traveller proceed so commodiously as along the road from Quebec to Montreal. A posting service had been established which could fairly be compared with European standards. At regular intervals along the road the traveller found post-houses where the postmaster kept four vehicles in readiness in summer the calche a one-horse chaise built for two passengers with a footboard seat for the driver and with the body hung by broad leather straps or thongs of bull's hide in winter the carriole or sledge with or without covered top also holding two passengers and a driver the drivers were bound to make 2 leagues an hour over the indifferent roads and in midwinter and midsummer the dexterous talkative good-humoured driver or march Donc, usually exceeded this rate for most of the journey of three days from montreal onward no one travelled in winter except an occasional indian messenger even in summer few thought of going by land though some half-broken trails stretched westward the river was the king's highway the summer traveller at once purchased the equipment needed for a week's river journey tent buffalo skins cooking utensils meat and drink and secured passage on board one of the bateaux, which went up the river at irregular intervals and brigades of half a dozen. The bateau was a large flat-bottomed boat, built sharp both at bow and stern, with movable mast, square sail, and cross benches for the crew of five or six. Sometimes an awning or small cabin provided shelter. In still water or light current, the French-Canadian crew, always merry, sometimes sober, singing their voyageur songs, halting regularly for the inevitable pipe, rowed or sailed where the current was strong they kept inshore and pushed slowly along by setting poles eight or ten feet long and iron-shod and where the rapids grew too swift for poling the crews joined forces on the shore to haul each bateau in turn by long ropes while the passengers lent a hand or shot wild pigeons in the neighbouring woods at night the whole party encamped on shore erecting tents or hanging skins and boughs from branches of friendly trees with average weather kingston could be reached in seven or eight days The return journey downstream was made in two or three. From Kingston westward the journey was continued in a sailing schooner, either one of the government gunboats, or a private venture, as far as York, or even to the greater western metropolis Queenston on the Niagara River. In good weather thirty or forty hours sufficed for the lake voyage, but with adverse winds from four to six days were frequently required. Thirty years later those to whom time or comfort meant more than money could make the through journey in one-third the time, though for the leaner purse, the more primitive facilities still lingered. For the summer trip from Quebec to Montreal the steamer had outstripped the stagecoach. Even with frequent stops to load the fifty or sixty cords of pine burned on each trip, how many Canadian businessmen secured their start and prosperity by supplying wood to steamers on lake or river? The steamer commonly made the hundred and eighty miles in twenty-eight hours the fares were usually twenty shillings cabin and five shillings steerage though the intense rivalry of opposing companies sometimes brought reckless rate-cutting in eighteen twenty nine for instance each of the two companies had one boat which carried and boarded cabin passengers for seven and six pence while deck passengers who found themselves in food were crowded in for a shilling from Montreal to Lachine, the well-to-do traveler took a stagecoach drawn by four spanking greys, leaving Montreal at five in the morning. For stagecoach hours were early and long. At Lachine, he left the stage for the steamer, and at Cascades, he took a stage again, and at Coteau, transferred once more to a steamer for the run to Cornwall shortly after eighteen thirty steamers were put on the river powerful enough to breast the current as far as dickinson's landing leaving only a twelve-mile gap to be filled by stage but in eighteen thirty it was still necessary if one scorned the bateau to make the whole journey from cornwall to prescott by land over one of the worst through roads in the province The Canadian stage of the day was a wonderful contrivance, a heavy lumbering box slung on leather straps instead of springs, and often made without doors, in order that, when fording bridgeless streams, the water might not flow in. With the window as the only means of exit, heavy-built passengers found it somewhat awkward when called upon, as they often were, to clamber out in order to ease the load uphill, or to wait while oxen from a neighbouring farm dragged the stage out of a mud-hole. The traveller, who knew the ropes, provided himself with buffalo skins or cushions, others went without. Arrived at Prescott, the passengers shifted to a river steamer, fitted more commodiously than the little boats used in the lower stretches, but still providing no sleeping quarters except in open bunks circling round the dining saloon. For thousands of the immigrants who were pouring into Upper Canada, the fares of the river steamer were still prohibitive many came on bateaux sometimes pulled along as of yore sometimes taken in tow by a steamer often more than a hundred immigrants men women and children would be crowded into a single thirty-foot bateau huddled together a traveller notes as close as captives in a slave trader exposed to the sun's rays by day and the river damp by night without protection Still more used the durham boat for the river journey this famous craft was a large flat-bottomed barge with round bow and square stern With centre-board down and mainsail and topsail set on its fixed mast, it made fair progress in the wider stretches, but on the up-trip it was for the most part polled or set along. Each of the crew took his stand at the bow-end of one of the narrow gangways which ran along both sides of the boat, set firmly in the river-bottom his long, heavy, iron-shod pole, put his shoulder to it, and, bending almost double, walked along the gangway to the stern, and inch by inch forced the boat upstream the noise made by the clanking of the iron against the stones as the poles were drawn up again toward the bow could be heard for a long distance on a calm summer's day finally at prescott or kingston the durham boat was exchanged for the lower decks of the steamer and the rest of the journey made with somewhat greater speed if not much greater comfort the twenty years which followed eighteen thirty saw the steamboat in its prime the travelling going westward from quebec in eighteen fifty had a simple task before him a change at montreal was the only necessary break in a relatively comfortable and speedy journey two days now sufficed for the trip from montreal to toronto in the united states river boats had been evolved which far surpassed anything europe had to offer in luxury and speed canadian businessmen were not far behind and the st lawrence lake and river route was well supplied with crack steamers of the royal mail and rival lines or with independent boats the competition was at times intense both in fares and in speed many canadians of the day absorbed in the local or personal rivalries of these boats and impressed by their magnificence and reliability were convinced that the last word in transportation had been said yet on the lake and river winter barred all through traffic the main turnpike roads of the interior were greatly improved but even on these long-distance traffic was expensive and the by-roads especially in the spring and autumn were impassable except at a snail's pace For traffic of town with town and province with province, some means of transport, less dependent on time and tide, was urgently needed. End of chapter 2